This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And well, welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for a midweek at the multiplex edition of the show today. Oppenheimer and Barbie boosting global box office receipts this summer on Wall Street. In the meantime, investors in the pink too, with their own Oscar contenders, including... Top Gun. The Dow getting top billing as the summertime raging bull rages on. Call it cruise control, perhaps, with 12 days of gains now in a row. The blessed blue chip performance since 2017, now with record highs, as we've discussed, in sight. Plus, Gladiator. Inflation warrior Jay Powell and his team at the Fed set to hand down their interest rate decision today. Powell remains on the pricing prowl, a hike today all but certain. But what then? Is a soft landing in sight or is that still mission impossible? And Star Wars, the guardians of the tech galaxy, battling it out for AI supremacy. A second quarter earnings season reaches orbit. Strong gains pre-market for Alphabet, but a slight pullback for Microsoft. We'll bring you all the action with tech analyst Dan Ives. And as we await the curtain raise on Wall Street, it's looking like a lower open for the major averages. The decider, of course, today, as I've already mentioned, will be what the Fed says about the future. But also lots of potential positives for the U.S. economy, too. A tentative contract deal has been hammered out between UPS and its unionized workers. The agreement will hopefully avert a strike that would have pressured U.S. supply chains. In the meantime, U.S. consumer confidence currently sitting at a two-year high. Plus, we're seeing more banking sector consolidation in the United States, too. Embattled regional bank PacWest being bought by another smaller payer, Bank of California. More tie-ups and consolidation to come, in my estimation. Lots to get to, as always, but let's begin with our feature attraction, the Monetary Matrix. Christine Roman stars in this movie and no one's well taking done, any pills no well one's taking done. any pills no one's taking any pills on this show at least until the end of it um the question is i guess for jay powell and for the read because clearly investors believe that the rate hike will happen yeah. is what's the bar for raising rates again yeah and what's the se- september scenario there's a mm-hmm. lot of data between now and the next meeting so there will be a lot of uh, of new information to to digest uh, you know, and will the Fed chief continue to gun it until you get down to 2% on CPI? Or is there a comfort level somewhere between where CPI sits right here and, and 2%? And, and also looking at, at core rates. I know the reporters who are in that room with Jay Powell today will be asking him about how, how firm he is on that 2% inflation target and how long he thinks it'll take them uh, to get there. And depending on what he says today, stock investors are either going to be uh, shown to be, you know, the, the victors or... Uh, or they overdid it, you know, um, because the stock market looks like it's completely pricing in uh, a soft landing here and, and no big surprises from the U.S. economy and from Jay Powell and an end in sight to the Fed rate hike cycle. So a rate hike expected today, maybe another one in the cards, but no one knows for sure. 
Yeah, and it's going to come down, I think, to your point of how much emphasis he places on cooling inflation versus the resilience and the strength in the economy, because that's where you're going to get the hints, really, if they are concerned about the ongoing resilience. And for much of that, it's tied to the jobs market and in particular wage pressures, which have been a battle for them. It's a good thing for workers, of course, but it's been an inflationary challenge now for the Fed for, for many months. Yeah. And right now, for the first time in this sort of inflation cycle, really, this current inflation cycle, you've got wages that are rising more briskly than inflation. So for for consumers on Main Street, that means for the first time in a long time, uh, their bigger paychecks are not being eaten up by the extra bills that they're paying. But that's good for Main Street. That's a problem for the Fed. And that's one of those messaging challenges I think the Fed chief is going to have, you know, where he has to explain why you want wages not to be too hot and why you want the job market not to be too hot, even though that's what that's what regular people would like. Yeah. And it's not a big problem for corporates. As as you said, the stock market show, it's a problem for smaller businesses, which um, aren't captured in those um, in those big indices. Um, Christine Romans, we shall see. Thank you for that. (laughs) Okay, to Israel now, where in the last few hours, the Supreme Court has ruled it will not issue an injunction to temporarily block the so-called reasonableness law. This strips the High Court's ability to rule government decisions as, quote, unreasonable. It was passed by the Knesset on Monday and is now in force. The Supreme Court says it will debate the controversial law in September. Hattis Gold joins us now from Jerusalem. So for those that have been protesting these reforms and this law change, it's a glimmer of hope, perhaps, that at least their questions, their concerns will be heard. They just have to wait until September. Yeah, they didn't get the temporary injunction that some of them were hoping that would immediately freeze this bill. Uh, But instead, the petitions will be heard in September after the court comes back out of its recess. In fact, the Supreme Court president and several of the senior justices were actually in Germany on an official trip and cut that trip short in order to rush back to Israel to hear these petitions. We know seven petitions in total will be heard in September. All of them will be heard in September about this bill. Now, this is setting things up for a major major legal battle, because what this bill did was it amended a basic law of Israel. Now, Israel doesn't have a written constitution. It has a set of basic laws with the idea, having been back in the past, that those basic laws would form the basis of a constitution in the future. And the Supreme Court has never has discussed basic laws, but it's never before ruled or nullified a basic law or a change to a basic law uh, in the past. And also, this would be the Supreme Court ruling on its own power, on its own abilities, what it can do uh, to strike down or to halt government decisions. Now, so what this means is right now, until you know this, uh, the legal battles are are fought, is that this law is now in force, and there is a question about what the government might do with this. And there are some critics who are worried that one of the first actions might actually be to fire the attorney general. The attorney general in Israel is a bit of a different position than, let's say, in the United States. The attorney general here is more of an independent legal body than it is in the United States. And the current attorney general has been a fierce critic of some of these government actions. She's criticized parts of this judicial overhaul. She's clashed with the government. And Julia, she's also overseeing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial. Now, he has denied those charges, has denied that this overhaul has anything to do with his corruption trial. But the critics now worry that because this bill, this is now a law on the table, that it'll be much easier for the government to fire her. Whereas before, the Supreme Court would have had an easier time to say, well, that was an unreasonable decision. They still have other avenues to block her firing, but there is now a fear this would open the door for actions such as getting rid of the attorney general. Julia. 
Yeah, we're going to watch this very closely over the next couple of months. Hello, Skoll. Thank you. Now, firefighters across Europe and Africa are having to tackle wildfires as extreme heat bakes the planet. Fires have killed dozens of people in Algeria, Greece and Portugal. Meanwhile, in Italy, while wildfires are blazing in the south, severe storms and giant hail have caused chaos and loss of life in the north. Nada Bashir joins us now from Rome. Nada, the extremes of weather that we're seeing across the country and this hail in particular is sort of mind-blowing. Absolutely. We've heard from the Italian civil protection minister who has described this as one of the most difficult periods that Italy has faced in years. This is an emergency situation. We're seeing hail and intense uh, storms in the north causing at least one death uh, so far. And in the southern regions of Italy, we are seeing those intense wildfires, at least 10 wildfires currently ongoing. The Italian emergency service is working to tackle uh, the blaze across different regions, including in Puglia, in Calabria and in Sicily. And in fact, yesterday we saw those flames in Palermo and Sicily getting dangerously close uh, to Palermo. Palermo Airport at one point bringing the airport to a standstill and forcing the authorities to evacuate local residents. And of course, this has been a deadly extreme heat incident. At least four people reportedly killed, according to the Italian authorities. And this is a huge concern. Italy's Civil Protection Agency says that more needs to be done to prepare Italy for what is set to be a future of repeated heat waves of this level and, of course, wildfires as well. And that is really a reflection of what we are seeing across the Mediterranean region. You mentioned Greece there, that devastation still ongoing, particularly in the islands of Evia, Corfu and Rhodes, where we are seeing those blazes continue. Emergency services and response teams from across the globe actually now working to, tar- to try and tackle uh, those wildfires. Thousands of people again evacuated, many of course fearing for their homes, many for their livelihoods as well. But this is spreading across the Mediterranean. We've seen fires in Algeria, in Tunisia, in Turkey, now in parts of Portugal and southern Spain. And the warning that we are hearing from experts is that this is going to become the new normal unless urgent action is taken, unless the globe stops burning through fossil fuels and stops rapidly. And that is uh, the message we've been hearing from the World Weather Attribution Initiative and that damning report, which was released yesterday. And of course, we've heard from uh, European Union officials as well, saying that they are working urgently to try and prepare member states for what is set to be a future of continued extreme heat incidences. EU experts saying that they believe that this will become more intense and more frequent with each passing year. Yeah, and can contingency plans and preparations need to be in place because that's what we have to expect now. Nada Bashir, thank you for joining us there from Rome. Ukraine says it's making advances in the east, but encountering fierce resistance near Bakhmut. This video appears to show Kyiv's forces taking over Russian positions south of the besieged city. CNN, just to be clear, unable to independently confirm the details on this. Meanwhile, the U.S. Secretary of State says American Trevor Reed's decision to fight in Ukraine should not impact efforts to free two Americans detained in Russia, Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich. Uh, even with uh, countries where we have profound differences, and almost by definition, uh, countries that are arbitrarily detaining or unlawfully detaining Americans are usually countries with which we have profound differences, uh, we've managed to find ways to uh, bring Americans home. 
Nick Robertson joins us now, Nick. And for those that may not have been following this story, Trevor Reeve, of course, someone who was detained in Russia, was released and then was injured fighting in Ukraine. So all sorts of questions being asked about and concern about his health, what he was doing there. But also, as we mentioned, for, for the families of individuals that remain detained in Russia, whether this will affect their ability to be released at some point, too. Yeah, and some U.S. officials are expressing concern that it might have an impact. There, of course, the official line is that from the State Department that they hope it doesn't, that they can continue in these difficult circumstances. Trevor Reed was released April last year on a prisoner exchange with a, a Russian pilot who'd been sentenced to 20 years in jail. I think it served about uh, 11 of those years for smuggling drugs. Um, so that was a pretty big deal, uh, that that prisoner exchange. And, and this is typical of how the United States manages to get uh, detainees out of Russia is through exchanges. So uh, the clear implication is if the Russians think that they're freeing people like Trevor Reed, a former U.S. Marine who spoke Russian, um, and that they're going to turn up on the battlefield later fighting Russian forces, um, that is, that's not a good sign. He's being treated at a U.S. military uh, facility in Germany, Landstuhl, um, the extent of his injuries aren't, uh, aren't clear at this time. Um, that would seem to be, his treatment there would seem to be slightly out of the extraordinary as well, because most of those um, U.S. vets or other national veterans of their military, militaries who go and fight in Ukraine, which isn't uncommon, um, generally get treated in Ukraine or, or, and then repatriated back home. So this seems a slightly different track. And also that may, that may send a signal to the Russians as well that's not going to help with the negotiations. But, but the State Department's been very, very clear here. Look, this was an individual acting on his own um, that had done this by choice. And the State Department said, again, very clearly that they don't recommend any U.S. citizens go to Ukraine because of the volatility of the situation and explicitly um, not the front line. So um, this is obviously, you know, making a, dip, a difficult diplomatic situation for prisoner exchanges much tougher. Yeah, and certainly more information required, not only about his health, but to your point, exactly what, was, um, what he was doing there. Nick Robertson, mm. thank you. Now, a dramatic scene here in New York City just a short time ago after a crane caught fire and collapsed in midtown Manhattan. Extraordinary images. It happened on a construction site on 10th Avenue and 41st Street. That's according to the fire department. The crane's arm became detached and crashed down into the street, striking a building, as you saw there, as it fell. Two people were hurt, one firefighter and one civilian. Both are said to be in a stable condition in hospital. And, of course, a real close call for all the people who were in the street there and ran. All right, coming up on First Move, Hidden Treasure, a mining startup with a mission to pinpoint key metals to help towards a clean energy future. Plus, author's letter to AI giants, what writers want from big tech. That's coming up. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. 
Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. 350 million. That's the number of electric vehicles the world needs on the road by 2030 to help reach net zero CO2 emissions by the middle of the century. That, at least, is according to the International Energy Agency. And just to give you some context, there were 16 and a half million EVs on the road at the end of 2021. So clearly, there's a long way to go. Now, achieving that goal is going to require a dramatic rise in the output of a few key materials. And we're talking about rare earth metals and minerals used in batteries and other forms of renewable energy like solar and wind farms. Well, that's where cobalt metals comes in. The mining startup says it's already utilizing the power of AI, geoscience and data aggregation to pinpoint deposits of copper, lithium, cobalt and nickel in more than 60 projects across three continents. And they say they can do it in a more efficient and sustainable way than traditional mining operations. And I'm pleased to say joining us now, Kurt House. He's the CEO and co-founder of Cobalt Metals. Kurt, fantastic to have you on the show. I've given it a go here, but just frame the problem in your mind. How big is it and how much do we need from from the earth? Yeah, perfect. And as we heard on your broadcast earlier, the world is getting hotter. It's getting hotter faster. We've already had record temperatures, many record temperatures this year. In fact, three of the hottest days on human record occurred in the year 2023 globally. This is a this is the sort of challenge of our time. And solving climate change requires many, many different things to happen. One thing that we definitely know has to happen is we have to electrify uh, virtually the entire economy, including, uh, and maybe most importantly, uh, the transporta- transportation sector. So just doing that one sector of the economy, all the cars, trucks, vans on the planet, uh, by mid-century, that's that's close to that's close to two billion electric vehicles, right? By by 2050, that need to be on the planet. And there's, as you just said, there's less than 20 million right now. So all of those cars, vans, and trucks require more of these special metals than your uh, than your traditional gasoline or diesel-powered car. Uh, and in fact, in fact, if you add it all up. All of those those two billion uh, electric vehicles that we need to put on the roads within the next less than 30 years, uh, it ends up being more than 10 trillion dollars worth of newly discovered 
lithium, copper, cobalt, and nickel, i.e. stuff where we don't, we don't actually yet know where the mines are going to be. We, have, we haven't discovered them yet. So this is, requires kind of a record pace of exploration, discovery, and development uh, in order to solve a, a necessary but insufficient part of, of the climate change challenge. We also need recycling of what we pull out of the ground as well. We often talk about this on um, on this show and, and the dangers of where the supply chain currently is. In many cases, it's um, unstable or complicated supply chain partners, China, uh, yeah. Congo, Chile. So it's finding and diversifying the sources of these metals and minerals is key too. explain the technology. Where does the artificial intelligence come in and, and why do you think you can identify the sources of these metals and elements better than, than anyone else? Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic question. So uh, fundamentally, exploration is a, is a search problem, right? What we're trying to do is, is understand uh, and predict the, the composition of the Earth's crust uh, with more statistical rigor than anyone has, has, ever, has ever done before. So the first question in any kind of AI challenge should be sort of what is the data that you're using right? where, and where does that come from? Well, the data here is that humans have actually been collecting information about the physics and the chemistry of the Earth's crust for, I mean, centuries, millennia in some sense, but at least over the last hundred years, they've been collecting that information uh, with great fidelity and more and more sophistication. Um, the types of data that humans have collected are magnetic anomaly data. So the Earth's magnetic field, it actually changes from place to place as you move around and it changes because the magnetic properties in the, in the Earth's crust and the rocks in the near surface of the Earth's crust uh, change. Similarly, the gravi Earth's gravitational field changes from place to place. We have uh, modern, modern satellite imagery can take very high spatial resolution as well as as well as high band resolution, which means many, many, many different wavelengths of information. We can probe the, the Earth with electromagnetic tools that tell us something about how conductive the rocks are. Uh, and then, of course, there's, there's, there's a huge amount of geologic descriptive information. You know, think of, think of old prospectors with a, a pen and a paper writing down what they see in the field, describing, describing the rocks and their orientations and all of that. All of that is the data, and it comes in it, it, it comes in myriad formats, right? Many, much of it is not even digitized all over the world, but it's, there's a huge corpus of that information that humans have collected. So what, what we're endeavoring to do is, is to identify all of that legacy information and then actually transform it into a way that's consistent, right? That's, that's universally organized so that, so that our, our humans and our and our, our computers and algorithms can systematically search in it and look for look for key connections between those very different data types. And that that makes sense to me. Um, and you are having some success, I believe. You've um, located nickel sulfide in Quebec, and part of the success there allowed you to raise money to um, search for copper in Zambia, I believe, too. And that brought in some pretty well-known names in terms of investors as well. But I think there will be a lot of people watching this and saying, even if you can be more accurate and use data science to target where you're mining, it's still mining. There are still environmental concerns about that. Explain to me why this is more sustainable than traditional yeah. forms of mining for these metals. I guess you just pull it out of the ground once in this case and, 
and then you're done versus burning the fuel the other side. But, but explain to me why this is more sustainable. Yeah, so the, so the first key, key question we have to ask is, is, do we get off fossil fuels or not, right? And if we don't get off fossil fuels, then we fry the planet uh, and we continue, we continue to, to mine and extract information for, you know, or extra, extract material from the earth for forever. Um, so that I think is sort of not an option. So the option is, do we mine a lot more in the next 30 to 50 years in order to have enough material to reach the, the, the circular economy that you referenced earlier, those sort of fully recycling, you know, recycling economy. But then the second question that you just asked is, okay, sure. So we can get to that, we can get to that, uh, fully circular economy, but to get there, we have to add, we have to mine a lot more material and that mining has real impacts. It absolutely does. It's completely true. Um, but not every mine is the same. And I can give you a simple example. So imagine a deposit that is 1% copper, say. That means that for every one kilogram of copper that you extract from the ground, you need to extract 100 kilograms of rock, right? Now imagine uh, a deposit that's 5% copper. Well, now you have to mine only 20 kilograms of rock for every kilogram of copper. So that's a five times reduction in the total amount of mining activity for the same amount of copper at the end of the day, right? So one of the things that we're trying to do is find the very, very best, very, very best deposits, which will both be the least expensive to mine and will have and in a, in a happy state of affairs will have by far the least impact. And then beyond that, it's a matter of, of, of caring deeply about, about your footprint in the region that we're mining and what that, what that overall impact means for all of the stakeholders, which is, which is every man, woman, uh, and child on the planet that cares about, uh, that cares about stopping global warming, as well as the people right near the mine who, who deal with any local impacts of the operation. Okay, so how long is it going to take? Because to your point, and I think it's a great line to use with investors, that there is no choice. If you want to get away from fossil fuels, there is no choice. Um, how long before yep. you can successfully see some of these metals coming out of the ground in scale? Because scaling up is what's going to be crucial to this. Um, and yeah. I, I, I asked the question, I know it's a tough one, um, sort of break even on the costs of this too, because I do feel like investors care a little bit about that more perhaps today than they, they did do. in the past. <laughs> yeah. They they care a lot about that, as they should. Um, so, so we we we've, we're already pulling in a in a in a certain sense. We're we're taking materials out of the ground right now, but it's only it's it's only in a scientific manner, right? So you said when when do you scale up, right? Right now we're we're pulling materials out of the ground uh, in a way to characterize what's under the ground and and understand the full economics of building building a mine there. Our project. Um, in Zambia that you referenced is probably our uh, is kind of our most forward project and that we are moving we're moving full full throttle to develop that project as fast and as responsible as possible so we currently have almost 250 people uh, employed on that one project site most of them are actually Zambians which is something we're we're quite proud of um, and and there's 24/7 operations. It's possible that that could be an operating mine with 
possibly within this decade, certainly within the next 10 years. Um, but it's going to, it requires many, many years and, and a huge amount of investment, but there's so much material there that, uh, that the sort of overall, overall investment returns will be, will be very good. Yeah. Well, that takes us beyond 2030. Yeah. I mean, we, we've got to get moving on this, um, which is why I yeah. think some of your big investors, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you've, you've attracted some, um, some pretty um, powerful people, expedient people when they get moving as well. So it's going to be uh, interesting to track Absolutely. your progress. Yeah. Kurt, great to have you. Great. Kurt Hasler, CEO and co-founder of Cobalt Metals. Great to chat. Thank you. All right, coming up, Tech Check, Alphabet and Microsoft talk AI, the cloud and more in their latest results. An extra special look at the X factor everyone is talking about too. I bet you can guess. Yes, you can. That's coming up. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on this wildly busy Wednesday, a Fed day, another blockbuster earnings day, too, in early action. The major averages are still lower, as you can see, as we await the big Fed rate decision in four and a half hours time. We've got a Jerome Powell pause at the last Fed get together. But this time around, stormier weather, a quarter percentage point rate hike is expected. The question is, what comes next? In pre-market earnings today, Boeing and Coke lending some support to the blue chips after they managed to beat on earnings forecasts. Coke raising its full year outlook, too. And on the Nasdaq, it's a tale of two techies. Shares of Microsoft are lower. Strong sales growth and positive talk about artificial intelligence, but some weaker forward guidance. Alphabet shares are rallying as cloud revenues please the street. They're up almost 6%. The earnings threads do not stop here. Meta earnings after the bell today. Much to discuss. As always, Dan Ives joins us now. He's the Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, good to have you with us. I do have to say, I feel a bit sorry for Microsoft because they beat expectations across the board, but expectations were so wild that there was always going to be a little bit of disappointment, perhaps. What do you yeah. make of it? And, and, and Julia, this is a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. I think this is a stock ultimately over the next 48 hours that will be green. I mean, this is a flex the muscles moment from Nadell and Redmond on AI. This is a get out the popcorn moment. AI is just starting what I believe is a 1995 internet moment. Wow. Okay, so we'll go backwards, but first give me your price target on this one because we were just showing the chart. And just also to point out to our viewers, they are up 46% already this year, just to give us a sense of perhaps bar on the rumour and sell a little on the fact. What's your price target now for these guys? Yes, we raised price target to 400. And I think we look out a year, they join Apple in the $3 trillion club, in our opinion, because... When we look at AI, this is an AI gold rush. It's something we haven't seen in 30 years uh, since Internet 1995. Top of the mound is NVIDIA and Microsoft. You look at those calls, Microsoft Alphabet, as a bull today, you're drinking your coffee for even better feeling about that bull thesis in tech. Yeah, I mean, there's the cloud component that we can talk about here. And then there's the artificial intelligence component and their investments in that, too. And you can perhaps give us some context, because in the run up to these earnings, they gave us a sense of what they were going to charge clients for the use of some of these AI driven tools, the pilot, the co-pilot. We've had Brad Smith on the show talking about this. I think that's priced at $30 a month. Do you have a sense and can you predict what proportion of their client base is going to be adopting, paying for these AI-driven tools over the next few years? 
Yeah, and, and Julie, that's an excellent question. I think it really goes to the core right now, the bull bear sort of debate on Microsoft. Look, we believe conservatively, you get 50% penetration. It could be much higher than that. Wow. Cloud revenues incrementally, that could be an incremental 100 billion of cloud revenues over the next three to four years, which is why this is all table stakes right now, just starting. You know, what I really view is the drum roll to a transformational time, not just across tech, but especially that trophy case is with Nadella and Redmond on AI. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating moment, as you call it, the AI rush. Um, we are going to see, we surely are going to see a ramp up of IT spending in this sphere. I feel like it's sort of the cybersecurity that never really got going from sort of two, three years ago. This feels very different in, in that regard. It's also an opportunity for every single tech company of any kind out there to keep throwing the AI word in there in order to boost their share price. For an investor, how do you distinguish between um, what's real and what's sort of fake at this stage? Yeah, you have to separate winners from losers. And I think it's not just talking it, it's actual use cases. You look right now what Microsoft's doing, MongoDB, Snowflake, Salesforce.com. This is just a start. I think Oracle's another example. I think it's really software and ships that are going to benefit here. And, and Julia, right now everyone's looking for, from my conversations, who are the second, third, fourth, fifth derivatives? And we believe this is potentially a trillion dollars of incremental spend over the next decade. It's really software chips that are going to lead it. NVIDIA, we could throw that one in there as well. Um, can I be really annoying and naughty and ask you about Prince? I mean, symbol. I mean, X. I mean, X formerly Twitter. And I'm not asking about Twitter. I'm asking because I know you cover Tesla and there's always that sort of ongoing nervousness, I think, that if advertising money is lost at Twitter, then Tesla's used by Elon Musk as the sort of funding tools to support the other business. What do you make of what we're seeing there? Are you trying to sort of set it aside and focus on the fundamentals at Tesla, which based on their last earnings look pretty great? Yeah, I mean, right now it's Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent. When it comes to this green tidal wave, we're seeing electric vehicles. I think the Twitter situation or X it's always going to be Twitter to me and the birdie. I think that's something where if there is ultimately more capital needed, it comes from outside capital, not must sell in stock. Mm -hmm. And then that's why right now that's a contained risk. But as we all know, Musk goes to the beat of a different drum. And I think it's a, it's a potential risky move getting rid of you know, the birdie. But it's all going toward the super app. And that's the ultimate vision. It's hard to bet against Musk. Yeah. But, Dan, it will always be a bird to me, Ives. We, we, we're always going to tweet. We're not going to X. We're always tweeting. But yeah. We're not. We're not Xing. No, we're not it's, Xing. it's always tweeting to me. Yeah. No, we're not. Xing. No pills. No X-rated nonsense on this show. <laughs> Done. Great to have you with us. We Thank appreciate you. your insight. Thank you, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Coming up after the break, artificial piracy, one of the world's oldest writers' organizations, is targeting companies behind the newest AI technologies. Authors say they need fair compensation for the use of their work to train these AI models. We're AI mad on the show today, and that's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. 
Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. As generative AI models gain a deeper foothold into everyday life, concerns about data piracy, originality, and a lack of transparency continue to grow. My next guest says her big concern is that large language models are being trained on copyrighted material taken without permission or without due credit. And now thousands of authors, including famous names like James Patterson, Jennifer Egan, Margaret Atwood and Ron Chernow, are speaking up. They've signed a letter to the tech giants best known for AI development like Microsoft, Meta and OpenAI, calling for consent, credit and fair compensation. They want to see a licensing solution that will pay writers on an ongoing basis for works that are used. The Authors Guild also wants content generated by AI to be labelled as such. And the Guild's president, Maya Shan Lang, joins us now. Her memoir, What We Carry, is on the Editor's Choice list at The New York Times. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. And I've got a printout of the letter here and the list of all the authors and associates that have signed it. And it's, um, it's pretty huge. This will be recycled, I promise. Just how big a threat to the industry and to authors is AI in your mind? It's a tremendous threat. And, you know, one way to kind of conceive of this, if people are wondering why authors are so up in arms and what the danger is, imagine if someone snuck into a famous chef's restaurant and gorged themselves and then didn't pay for any of the food that they'd consumed, but then went and regurgitated the contents of what they'd eaten and opened a restaurant selling that regurgitated content. So um, I think even if you have no knowledge of copyright law or tech, you can appreciate that that situation is unfair, both on the input side of taking in food and not paying for it, and on the output side of trying to profit from what you've illegally ingested. Yeah, I mean, to your point, there there is two things. There's the, as you call it, the input side. There's the use of data, books, phrases that this can do incredibly quickly to train the models first and foremost. And if we talk about the copyright, because I know you are a copyright lawyer, without actually paying for the material or paying for the books, that's the first thing. You're saying, look, it's okay if you want to buy these books or buy this material, but the authors themselves need to be compensated. That's the first part of this. Correct. That's the first part. And I should clarify, I myself am not a copyright lawyer. I'm just an author. I I represent the Authors Guild, and we do have a legal team of our own that has worked for years on this issue. What we know is that these book data sets used to train large language models were obtained from piracy websites. So, you know, in other words, a human being who's doing research might go to the library to get books. You don't necessarily pay for all of your research material, but when you go to the library, that library has licensing fees that they pay to publishers, so authors get compensated. So the idea of multi-billion dollar tech companies getting PDFs of our books, illegal PDFs of our books, and using those 
to train these large language models, it's just egregious because they certainly do have the budget to compensate us fairly, especially given that our works are a huge part of why AI is so sophisticated and able to uh, you know, pull off impressive feats. So even if we could get to an arrangement where um, authors are compensated for the material that's used, um, the sort of bigger fear that I have, and it comes down to an interview that I did with Reid Hoffman, who's a big um, AI investor, LinkedIn founder, and he'd co-written what he called a travelogue, not a book, with ChatGPT4. Um, and it was incredibly sophisticated. It was funny. Uh, it was um, sort of mesmerizing. It didn't have the human quality that, that you bring specifically to, to the written word so well. But for me, I, I was... I was astonished at how well it was writing and the outputs that this was creating. And I, I wonder how worried you are about that part of this, too, about simply being replaced. I mean, we're seeing you know, protests in Hollywood over the fears for writers there, too, specifically tied to this technology. How do you control that? That's a great question. And, you know, I should say as background, one of the things we've seen at the Authors Guild is a 40% decline in income for writers over the past few years. So it is not an easy field in which to make a living. And the idea of an influx of content from AI, which of course, you know, AI can produce works exponentially faster and cheaper than human beings. So that influx into the marketplace will only make it harder and more difficult to earn a living in this field. And yeah, one thing we've noticed, I mean, there are uses of AI that we never could have predicted or imagined. For example, there are companies out there right now that are tracking pre-orders of books. Meaning, say I have a book coming out this December, my publisher would have pre-order links up on Amazon and other you know, websites. And there are companies tracking these pre-orders and then using AI to come up with books to fill that niche. In other words, they wanna beat me wow. to my book coming out and effectively wow. preempt my sales because they can get there very quickly. And they've identified in looking at pre-orders, they've identified an existing market or demand for a particular book, you can see how this can play out less for literary, for example, and more so for technical books or practical books. And that is alarming. Um, it should alarm anyone. And that's part of why the Guild wants books that have been generated by AI to be labeled as such. You know, our food gets labeled, right? So if there's uh, an artificial ingredient in something that you're eating, you know about it. And similarly, if artificial intelligence has been used to produce a work, that should be clear to consumers. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm not sure where the government is involved. I'm not sure about fighting for appropriate compensation. It always, like social media in these cases, comes down to the consumer and the consumer making a choice that, okay, this is available, but if you want to support individuals and someone real behind this, you have to... Um, you know, put your put your money where your morals are, perhaps, if that's what the, the situation is. Um, I'm just about that's out of time. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing it. And um, we'll we'll come back to this conversation because um, I think getting action is going to be a battle. But um, it's a fight clearly you're willing to um, to have. Great to chat to you. Thank you so much.
great chatting with you. Thank you. <laughs> we'll talk again. The president of the Authors Guild there. Thank you. Coming up on First Move, from the legendary Lionel Messi to the amazing U.S. women's team, America's football fever, coming up. Okay, this just in, the economic community of West African states says there's been a, quote, attempted coup in Niger. CNN has learnt the presidential complex was sealed off. Both Reuters and AFP reported Wednesday that the presidential guards are holding President Bazoum inside the presidential palace in the capital, which has been blocked off by military vehicles since Wednesday morning. But a statement on the presidency's social media channels, which CNN can't verify, said President Mohamed Bazoum is, quote, doing well. The chair of the African Union Commission has condemned the attempt to seize power by force and called on the forces involved to stop immediately. Any further information on that, we will bring it to you. Now to some football fever in America. The excitement is not only for Lionel Messi's arrival here, but also for the women's national team trying to claim an unprecedented third straight World Cup crown, as Andy Scholes reports. USA! USA! Bubbles, 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 USA! That pretty much sums it up. U.S. soccer fans are confident. I am predicting they absolutely three-peat. And ready to celebrate the World Cup's first ever back-to-back-to-back champion. But the team is not getting ahead of themselves as they prepare for a rematch of the 2019 championship game against the Netherlands. This is going to be an incredibly difficult matchup, um, very challenging. We know that we have to be at our best. The U.S. women's quest for history abroad happening at the same time as the greatest player ever, Lionel Messi, has taken his talents to South Beach. Messi! After a Hollywood debut where he scored the winning goal in front of the likes of LeBron, Serena, and Kim Kardashian, Messi following that up with two goals in the first 22 minutes Tuesday night, wowing the home crowd, leading Inter-Miami to a 4-0 win over Atlanta United. Messi mania completely taking over, selling out stadiums across the country. Prices are way up. They're up about 10 to 12 times what a normal MLS game would be selling for. We've never seen anything like this, to have the best player in the world come over in the prime of their career to play in America. There's never been anything like that. This latest soccer boom comes as many Americans have fallen in love with Wrexham, a British team thousands of miles away who are now an unlikely box office smash thanks to Deadpool actor Ryan Reynolds and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia's Rob McElhenney who purchased the team in 2020 and have invested $3.7 million into the club. Ahead of season two of their hit FX show, Welcome to Wrexham, the team is touring the U.S. after earning promotion to a higher league last season. People said at the beginning, why Wrexham? Why Wrexham? This exactly why Wrexham. And Reynolds and McElhenney are dreaming of even more. I love just hearing friends of mine, people that are, you know, some are in showbiz, some are not in showbiz, different walks of life, just saying the words, the word Wrexham now. Like it's just a normal Mm-hmm. part of the lexicon. I just think it's so cool. I get asked more about this than anything, anything in show business, that's for sure. Yeah. And finally, on first move, candy or condiment or just blech, you decide. Skittles has teamed up with the French's food company for a new flavour concoction, mustard Skittles. Yes. 
It's all in anticipation of National Mustard Day on August the 5th. The two companies say the product has a tangy mustard flavor. Surprise, surprise. But the question is, does it cut the mustard? We shall see. My take on this, don't even try a ketchup Skittles. I'm not feeling the mustard. Yeah, that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.